Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host as always, Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter, uh, where we focus on treating ALS by covering all the bases with research, advocacy, and patient care services. Today, we're going to be talking about really two aspects of that, which is research and patient services here at Hershey Medical Center, because uh, what's really interesting to me and to anyone that knows it is that there's a big collaborative approach here at Hershey Medical Center and that a lot of the other ALS Association treatment centers across the country and across the world. Uh, before we start with our guest today, Judy Leiter and uh, Travis Haynes, um, I just want to give a little bit of a background to hopefully uh, whet your appetite and interest in this discussion we're going to have today. Um, my grandfather had ALS. He passed away in 2007, was diagnosed in 2005, and a lot of the research has changed and a lot of the approach to it has, has been improving ever since then and even while he had it. Um, but I think when he had it and when other people have thought about ALS generally, they think about someone in a wheelchair. They think about um, you think about people that are having trouble using their hands. You think about people who are having trouble speaking or breathing. Uh, but one thing that sometimes uh, people don't realize when they come to ALS is the effect it has on the brain. And there's a lot that we're learning about uh, very recently and with research that's been going on for many years to get some answers on the impact on the brain. And a lot of that great research is happening right here at Hershey Medical Center in the service area of the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. So I think we're going to learn a lot today and hopefully educate a lot of families and even ed educate some researchers who are a lot smarter than me about the progress we're making in the fight against ALS to treat the whole mind, body, and soul of ALS. Though maybe we'll figure out the soul some other time. <laughs> um, again, my guests are Judy Leiter and Travis Haynes. Uh, thank you both for joining us. We're glad to be thank a part you. of this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so before we start, can you guys give a little bit of background about um, you know what you do and how long you've been working on the ALS cause generally? So we'll start with Judy because you're to your closest. I've been with the ALS Association for approximately 14 years, um, eight of it full-time before that as a consultant, and I'm a licensed professional counselor as well as a nurse and have always had an interest in caregiving as well as patient care. So that kind of got me to ALS, and when we found out that there was um, more interest in the change of the brain in some of our patients, it drew me into the picture of working more with the mental health emotional part. Well, that's, that's really great, and I uh, appreciate many years of working on this very challenging disease. Uh, Travis, tell us a little about how you came to be, not just in this room, but... Sure, sure. Um, so I, I've been part of the research program here, uh, working with Dr. Simmons and the ALS program for approximately two years, uh, and before that, my primary role was performing neuropsychological assessments uh, in the Department of Neurology uh, for Drs. Flaherty Craig and Dr. Um, Ferrace. She was in the Department of Neurosurgery. So when I had those skills available and I kind of came into the research area, um, this hadn't really been explored to the degree that Dr. Simmons and the team wanted to explore this previously, so we kind of started to collaborate, and from there it's turned into what it is today. So, to ask a really um, stupid question, what is this? <laughs> Again, we're talking about, you know, I guess we're talking about this assessment that you do. 
right? right? Um, in terms of your your specific work. That's right. That's right. So uh, according to, to current statistics, and obviously depending on the statistics one cites, uh, we know that people who are diagnosed with ALS, approximately 20 to 50% are going to have some form of cognitive change. Uh, cognitive change being something that shows up on a, partic a particular assessment. Um, approximately 10 to 15% are going to, at some point, uh, have evidence of frontotemporal lobar degeneration and may potentially have the diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia. And what's the is are there different kinds of dementia or like is that if I say oh I have dementia which I hopefully I don't but that's um, is that normally frontotemporal is that the, the normal kind or is it just a specific form? So there I mean, we only go into a ton of detail about right, that. Right, right, right. So dementia is an umbrella term for a whole host of things. A, a lot of people are probably most familiar with Alzheimer's disease, which is a form of dementia. Mm -hmm. um, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's disease with dementia, mm -hmm. all different forms. That, and the Parkinson's disease with dementia, not that, again, it's different like with That's ALS, right? right? So. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, um, you know, this is a type of dementia that can occur with people that are diagnosed with ALS, but can occur on its own as well without ALS being present. So, you know, this is a, a, a brief assessment that we use to maybe check in and see how people are, are doing when they first come to clinic to establish a baseline that we can maybe keep an eye on things as a standard of care. So, so how did this assessment about like uh, you, you guys collaborate at Hershey Medical Center um, with your backgrounds and then Judy with your clinic approach. So how did you get to the next steps of figuring out that this was an important thing to do or, or even how to put it together? We've been doing some type of assessment for the cognitive behavioral aspects of ALS for a long time. Mm -hmm. But the information that we gathered, we didn't really quite understand or know how to interpret because it wasn't specifically meant for those with ALS. So Dr. Simmons collaborated with Dr. Sharon Abrams of the UK, and she had been doing a research using the, this tool in research for a couple of years, but it had never been done in a clinical approach. So our thoughts were let's give it a try in the in the clinical setting so it's one of those transition tools now that has gone from a research to a clinical and it's really been a helpful tool in that it gives us specific information that we can help to share with the caregiver and the patient to understand some of the things that are changing and to come up with new strategies to enable them to have better quality of life. So part of this wasn't just coming up with a survey. It was finding out how to interpret data in a way that you couldn't before so you could, um, so you could be helping people. Right. Studies had been done that showed that individuals with this particular type of ALS cognitive behavioral changes have problems with 
word fluency, language, executive functioning, which means that they have issues solving problems or not looking at the consequences of decisions that they make, as well as we know then that a small percentage can have an actual blown dementia. So this gives us a an area that we can now look at and say, okay, so if if when this assessment is done, the um, answers show that they have problems with the word fluency, the language, or executive functioning, we know that that's more from the specific ALS disease than an, uh, just any form of dementia. And so it enables us then to problem solve with the caregivers to help them figure out how can they keep the individual safe and how can they best give them quality of life, as well as enable the caregiver to have a better life. Because imagine ALS right. and a form of cognitive behavioral changes all in one person. It's very devastating. And that's important for your background, even before you came to ALS, is that connection with a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And that's your understanding, and it's really interesting to me coming here, uh, when just hearing all the nurses and social workers and everyone. It is, it's not just a collaborative approach at a Hershey Medical Center, but it's a collaborative approach for that person with ALS with themselves as a patient, family members, caregivers, community, so that they know how to approach someone, especially if they have maybe this dementia issue. Absolutely, but it's even more than that. I, you know, we used to focus on d- does the patient have dementia, and I think we've kind of pulled away from that. Mm-hmm. What we're interested in is how can we best figure out what it takes to keep the patient safe and to help the caregiver to understand the changes that they may be seeing in that particular patient. You can imagine if you have if your loved one has ALS and has all these physical needs, and then on top of it, they either become, um, if, they, if they're having behavioral changes and they start acting out or they, you know, are, are not thinking through situations like they used to be able to come up with good solutions and they can no longer do it, you're going to get angry with them. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to get frustrated and say, you're, you're just giving up. And that when we do this assessment, we more or less can help the caregiver understand that, no, that's not true. Your loved one just isn't able to do that anymore. So it helps them to see the patient in a different limelight. Like, okay, not only are they physically not able to do the same things, now I have to understand that this isn't my loved one, this is the disease. Yeah, I'm sure it helps with the stress levels of of everyone too, because it's so, I mean, with my grandfather... I don't know that he had FTD, but he he had a lot of these issues where he, I don't know about problem solving, but um, there were words he couldn't figure out. And that happened early on. He only had it for two years, but he also, names he couldn't do as well. And it was very, it was, that was probably harder than the the disease. You can, I can deal with someone in a wheelchair, but when, you know, he, he wasn't remembering my grandfather's name in the same way, that was harder than him not being able to walk. That you can deal with in your head. Right. And other people don't understand. You know, right. many we, we've had patients present with the changes in their cognitive or behavioral um, emotional status versus the ALS, you know, mm-hmm. when they or when they look back and they say, oh, my goodness. Yeah, these changes came even before they had the diagnosis of ALS. So it could be either or. And mm-hmm. 
and it, it's just so much to absorb just hearing the ALS part and and then add the other onto it so we're trying hard not not to add so much of a diagno another diagnosis to it we're trying to clinically use it to give them better life and so it's it's information that's shared with the team um, after Travis and I do the testing and, and we do the scoring, then we bring it to the wrap-up where everyone is together talking, you know, amongst ourselves about the individual and how best to send recommendations to them. And by us sharing with, for instance, physical therapy or occupational therapy, that the patient isn't quite uh, um, absorbing what we're saying in the same way that someone else might be, they change their way of sharing that information to help the patient understand a little better, but more so they spend more time with the caregiver, helping the caregiver to understand, no, you can't think that they may be able to stay safe themselves. So tell me how you um, developed this assessment. Like, are there certain questions that you knew would kind of lead you to these kinds of answers? Is Did you develop an assessment to lead you towards something that you knew was a likelihood or was it to rule things out? Because ALS, I know, as a disease, is a disease of exclusion, uh, uh, excluding other things first. But is this more, you know, saying, okay, well, it's this kind of dementia or it's something different or, you know, we can just kind of toss that out? Sure. So from, from what I understand from talking to, to Sharon Abrams is that, you know, this is a brief exam that's, you know, continually in, de in development. A lot of the pieces that she has as being a part of this exam comes from very well-known uh, neuropsychological assessments. It's kind of uh, piecemeal, bits and pieces from um, whether it's an IQ test, there's some of that in there, tests of executive function, and uh, puts them all neatly into this assessment that can be done probably, you know, depending on the patient. 15 minutes to 30 minutes, especially, you know, the latter, especially if somebody has uh, difficulties in speech and have dysarthria. But it is in development to maybe one day piece apart, you know, is this frontal dementia, dementia versus Alzheimer's disease? Because there are certain patterns in cognitive functioning that can be pieced apart. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for the most part, we, we can see... Patterns, again, we, we wouldn't put everything in one basket and say that, oh, yes, this is, diagnostically speaking, uh, FTD, um, because that requires a whole team uh, of experts, such as a neurologist, a neuropsychologist, um, uh, imaging of the brain and whatnot to come to a comprehensive diagnosis. But again, down the road, the hope is to maybe use this as a brief exam to prevent, you know, patient burden. Right, and then it, you know, it's easier than doing some of those other kind of tests. That's exactly right. Cheaper. Absolutely. Um, and maybe it can tell you, well, this is, in all likelihood, this is probably the direction. And so it's, we're going to give you some therapies, not drugs, but some ways of attacking this as a family that you some coping mechanisms and things like that because based on the results, right? Right. right. It's it's also it's an assessment that's divided into two. The patient gets the cognitive portion, 
and the caregiver gets the behavioral portion, how he or she perceives the behavior of the patient. Right, because if you just ask me, how is your behavior? I'm like, I'm great. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Who wouldn't say that? Yeah. Right. And so it has become more than assessing those answers that the caregiver is giving to me. It's more that I am able to ask a little bit more of the question in a different sense that they hear it from a different way. In mm -hmm. other words, they will defend the care, the patient in many cases and say, oh, no, 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 they don't do that. But it opens up their thought process and they might say, but you know what he has been doing? And then we're able to talk about those things. So it's an educational component as well for the caregiver and an, a, an opportunity for the caregiver to share things that they don't understand that possibly as a result of doing this assessment together, um, we're able to shed some light on it. Not to, not to again, make the patient have another issue, but right. to help the patient. Right. That's, yeah. that's what the main goal of this is. I'm sure that maybe it's not even just that it's going to give you some tools, some communication tools and coping mechanisms for a patient and family, but it also is a good way for you to start a conversation with someone, right? Mm -hmm. Especially mm -hmm. with the Absolutely. way you do the assessment. So so the assessment's not just like, here's 10 questions, fill it out in the Scantron, we'll like, tell you later, right? It's really, you know, a more personalized approach in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. Travis does the cognitive portion with the patient. Mm -hmm. And again, if the patient isn't able to communicate, it, it takes him a lot longer. But his personality is such that sometimes I have to knock on the door and say, you know, socialization time is over here. <laughs> because, you know, it, it isn't meant to stress the patient out. It's meant to help the patient. Yeah. And the same with the caregiver. Um, you know, many times I have to say, here's the tissues. This is part of my job to make you feel sad, but it's to help them also to understand more. And really, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the families as to how helpful. And it opens the door so that then when a new thing occurs, they're not fearful to pick up the, the phone and call me and say, okay, mm -hmm. now here's what today is bringing. What do I do about this? Mm -hmm. So that we can kind of guide them. Yeah, and I was just talking with Dr. Connor about the kind of research that happens in Hershey Medical Center, and it reminds me of what we were saying in terms of the personalities here and um, the relationships you build with the patient families, because they have to be able to trust you and feel good about you to answer these questions. And so the only way you're able to provide good care is if they're willing to be at ease with you, right? You have to put people at ease in a very tough situation in life. Absolutely. The only problem there is that we do try, as a rule, to do this assessment the second or third visit that the mm -hmm. individual comes because we want a baseline. Yep. The first visit isn't fair because they're way overwhelmed. Right. They can't absorb yeah. anything else. But the second or third visit, depending on our patient load, we try to get it done so we have this baseline. So they may or may not know us real well by then. But the bottom line is they know we're open to talking about this. Mm -hmm. Just like if you have a bunch of teenagers for kids and you, you know, drop the hints that you're there to talk about whatever they want to, that you're not going to, you know, think it's stupid or anything like that, then you're opening the door. And so it is with the caregivers and, and the patients that we're hoping we open the door for them. Well, that's why it's important on your end to 
be as welcoming and at ease as possible from the very minute that they get here, which isn't easy to do, I'm sure, because it's a disease that's that's hard on you guys. Probably even harder than it is for me, and I've been touched by it by all the people here. But so you have to be on at all times in order to do this successfully. We try. We do try. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we absolutely. admit our faults, however. <laughs> well, I'm going to give, give you all the credit in the world. So, you know, you, you can pick yourself up. But, so the baseline, that was something I had written down earlier um, and written down again. Uh, it reminds you of concussion testing. And I know this is different than that. Mm-hmm. But it also, you know, when I hear about in the NFL or any other professional sports, especially in schools, I do a baseline test. Students sometimes try and rig it. Right, and, and and I don't know that you can with something like this later in life, but um, maybe you do. So that they're like, oh well, then later, no, they won't know that I had a concussion because I want to keep playing. So how does that play? Is it, it is it similar in my thinking in terms of how things are done with concussions? Is it a lot different? There there are a lot of similarities. I, I, I'm not familiar, obviously, with all the concussion assessments. I know of like the impact assessment. I think is one that they do in schools a lot. But uh, a lot of the tasks can be can be similar. Uh, again, there's a lot of key go-to tasks that they include on exams and uh, kind of have the hallmark neuropsychology stamp of approval. And, um, you know, it, it's not something that you could particularly study for. And, and I know as soon as I go into the room and I start talking about what this assessment is, you know, I, I try to tell people, you know, this this is not something that we're going to use to assess your your IQ. We're not going to get an intelligence quotient. Uh, I'm not looking for perfection because, uh, you know, it's almost impossible. Uh, I just want to see best effort. And um, you could not have prepared for this in in any way, shape, or form. Now, if if we would do the assessment, say, second visit, and they come back in third visit, they're probably going to remember some of the things that were on the assessment. So test, retest would would be uh, we would say we would probably want at least six months in between testing yeah mm-hmm. we have retested but it's only when the family comments to us or the patient comments to us we've had a few extremely intelligent patients that have said to us something's wrong I'm not doing as well here and so you know they've wanted it and yeah. we've redone it yeah um, but that's we haven't retested too frequently yeah and so that that's important that the point you made that sometimes the patients themselves realize something's wrong here i mean i and that's hopefully something you're able to do on the clinic level is let people feel comfortable with telling you those kinds of things Mm -hmm. because i'm sure you have to be at a point where people have to tell you a lot of things that they wouldn't necessarily tell even their spouse right and that's not an easy situation to be in right and especially if these patients are still employed and some of them were employed in the higher corporate level Mm -hmm. and so they are responsible to a lot of other people and so if they're feeling insecure about um, mentally functioning the same as they had been prior then that's a concern we need to help them we need to help them understand yes maybe this would be a good time to step back or maybe this is really what's going on here. Maybe there's anxiety involved or depression involved. So we have to address all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're doing these assessments, do you you, you um, take all those kind of neurological things and figure out if this is really dementia or is it more depression? Because I think a lot of these symptoms can come manifest themselves that way, I guess, right? Like 
behavioral things go with depression a lot, and I've seen mm-hmm. that in my own life. So you have to you have to figure out like how do you figure out that it's more likely depression um, dementia than something like depression, which I know can greatly affect behavior. We have another tool in clinic that we give to every patient prior, we have them fill it out prior to their clinic appointment. It's called the quality of life. Mm -hmm. And in the quality of life, there's negative emotions. It's a a combination of many of the questions that pull out their, their emotion level. And so if it's really a low score, I personally say, let's wait till the next visit. Let's see if they're willing to either get some counseling or go on an antidepressant. Or if it's a specific situation that they can share with me that's creating them feeling the way they are, like maybe they've just severed the ties with their employer or whatever, mm-hmm. then then we just wait. Yeah. You know, we want to try to decrease the variables in the testing. There's also a, a list of... Um, certain diseases or certain uh, illnesses that we do not test with. If we know a patient has had a prior history of depression um, historically and is on a lot of medications for that, we usually will refrain from testing. If they've had a prior diagnosis of any kind, like um, that they've had a prior brain injury or they've had um, a heart attack, or they have severe diabetes, things that are out of, you know, our realm of being able to, to have some control over, then we we just do not. If they've had alcohol and drug abuse, um, if, if it's continuing, then we do not test. So there's a list. And we try to be fair because, again, as you've said, it, it can intervene and interfere with the results and give us, you know, a... A wrong skew on what yeah, we're absolutely. seeing. Absolutely. But that's a lot to leave out. So you want to be as accurate as possible with what you're doing and you have to account for a lot of variables there. Um, so how do you make sure that, so is there any way you make sure then that like, well, I know that this is more likely not one of those things. Like you have like a whole list, so like a criteria of, okay, they, they said A, and A would go here, they said B, B is this, or it's just really, you become you, you kind of know it from knowing the patients and the history and like, taking a holistic view. We don't really know the patient that well by the second visit, but, I mean, but taking we have a team, right, right. and so after the first team visit, after the patient has been here for the initial visit, and we have our wrap-up and we have our team, we take into consideration what each member of the team has learned. And that kind of helps focus in on whether or not the testing is going to be done the next visit or not. And also the patient's feedback and the caregiver's feedback. And there's three months between visits. So if we get notes from the family or if we hear of issues going on, then there's no question. If we know the patient has just started on an antidepressant before they come back for their second clinic visit, we're not going to do it then. We're going to wait. We're going to give it time because um, we want an accurate result. We don't, you know, this is to help them. It's not to, um, you know, try to present another problem to them. How important is that feedback that comes from the patient and the caregiver then? Because I'm sure, like you said, that doesn't just happen every three months. That can happen... Mm-hmm two days later, like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, they start feeling this way or that way. Um, so how important is, are those relationships that you build with those caregivers and make sure they can feel comfortable telling you some sometimes uncomfortable things? 
They they are very good about using the telephone and the email. Mm-hmm. I think it's less threatening. Yeah. In between visits. I mean, we're on a podcast, um, and some people don't want to be on video, but it's easier exactly, to do this. Exactly. Exactly. So so we do hear from them, and especially if there's really problems, because it's very scary. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine if you're the let's let's just say for instance, the man of the house takes care of all the finances, mm-hmm. and suddenly things just aren't working right they're getting notices in the mail that so-and-so hasn't received their money whatever and so the caregiver or the wife might say what's going on here and and so having had the opportunity to have the assessment done one of the things I do stress is that can be a change when an individual can no longer do some of those things that they used to do Mm -hmm. and especially when it comes to the finances some of the patients will actually say, I just can't do it. But others don't want to say that because it's painful to give up something else that they can't do. Right. And, and therefore, it's, we've had experiences, which is what really got us into all of this. We've, had, we've watched some bad experiences happen to families because no one was aware that these things could be happening. They're very vulnerable to being scammed if they mm-hmm. have, you know, either cognitive or behavioral issues. And you know scamming is at its max right now. So there's been some serious scamming. There's been some, you know, individuals that have opened up a lot of credit cards not knowing the consequences or f- being able to figure out the consequences of spending more than maybe the income is, these kind of things. And the patient isn't doing it because they want to do it. This is because they can't figure it out. So we need to figure out how to help them. And, and, and this has been the biggest help to us. So being able to do these kind of assessments, you can put the caregiver at ease, mm-hmm. the patient at ease, mm-hmm. let them know that this isn't good, this is happening, but here's a reason. Mm-hmm. And so you can feel a little bit less, maybe less judgmental too, right? Absolutely. Like that's a big deal. That's the biggest, I think. Oh, really? You know, understand that this your, your loved one doesn't want this to happen. Mm-hmm. It's something out of their control, just like they don't want their limbs not to work, right. but they're just not working because of the ALS. So, you know, it's trying to help them to continue having the relationship that hopefully they had before all of this happened. And you've been working on thing, on ALS for 14 years now, you said. Oh, more than that. Well, okay, yeah, so for right. a long time. Right. Um, there's There's right. been a lot of stigma around mental illness, which is different but mm-hmm. um and around brain things and a lot of ads out there that are very good in terms of letting people know that some injuries aren't vis- disabilities aren't visible do you think there's been a lot of progress in people being willing to understand that that there's changes that people have that aren't just my leg doesn't work or or is that going to be a long road to hone for anybody because it it's just the way human nature is right you, if i see someone in a wheelchair i know that right they can't walk but i know a lot of people with als and I don't think them anything wrong cognitively unless someone tells me because most people they're in a wheelchair it doesn't mean they're not smart not they're not thinking well you know it's hard I to see. I think that is such a good point, Tony. Is, and yeah. uh, what I I'm and writing I, down all these people are saying I'm <laughs> good points. Well, uh, what I say to to the patient when they uh, you know kind of feel bad that something could be wrong. Um, I say, but you know what? Listen, if if the doctor tells you you have to take a pill for your heart because it's not working all right, you're gung-ho. You're going to do it. You're not going to miss more than one dose. But if someone tells you your head just isn't working the same as Mm -hmm. it's supposed to work, it's like, oh, no, my -hmm. head's fine. I'm not taking anything. And and the truth is that the 
the head controls everything else. So, you know, we got to do everything we can to keep the person functioning as good as we can. Yeah, if your heart's bad, but your brain is bad, mm-hmm. then you don't take your heart medication, right? Like, right. So that's a, that's a serious point that you probably bring up with the yes. caregivers and the patient is, you know, if you're having these cognitive issues, you're not able to take care of yourself in these other physical ways. So this is priority one, right? Right. Because yeah. there's a lot of other decisions that they have to make, and you have to be on your game. Just like you have to be on your game in the first meeting they come here, right? Like, you can't you can't really rest with this. Right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Because it's a big concern, and, and it has such a big impact on the entire family. Mm-hmm. And, and many times when the patient is you know, having struggles and not willing to admit the struggles are present, then I have to help the caregiver to understand that they have to have help on board. They have to have support and and they may have to change the role that they had within the family. And that's not easy. It's not easy if the caregiver is is maybe a female who's always been the the homekeeper, the housekeeper, you know, the the raising of the children. And, And now suddenly she needs to learn how to do the finances or she needs to say no if if her spouse wants to drive when she knows it's not safe mm-hmm. for him to drive. These are very difficult issues. Mm-hmm. It's true the other way around, too, because many times, and I don't mean to stereotype, but many times the male isn't used to how important it is how a woman looks. So, you know, he might say, well, that can be wait till later if she wants to get her hair done or whatever, but... The person inside hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. It's everything else that's changed. And, and we have to help them to understand each other better. And on that note, male or, female or male, I mean, being able to control your appearance may be one of the last things you have control over, right? Exactly. So, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people and read stories about people with ALS and other disabilities where, like, being done up in some way is just the most important thing. Because I'm, if I'm stuck in a wheelchair... I want to at least look as good as possible because that's that's what I have. You know, I, I want people to see this. I'm, I'm doing a visual thing on a podcast, but I'm doing from the <laughs> neck up. You know, you know that's important to me. That people can see. There's um, I, I don't remember the uh, what's her. We have some people who have ALS and have seen their pictures on the wall, and it's from the neck up. And uh, uh, Carrie Voigt's wife, uh, Catherine Voigt who passed away from ALS and were involved with our chapter, you go to national office and her picture is up in the hallway. And it's not a picture of her unable to walk. It's her smile and her head from her shoulders up. You know, mm-hmm. It shows why it was important to her. And that's valuable. That's fair. Um, so, Travis, uh, you've been doing these assessments for a, a bit now and improving on them, like you said. Um, have you seen some improvements in terms of how it's affected people with ALS and their caregivers that it's been making a difference in terms of how they're able to cope with the disease or make life changes that they need to make? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think Judy does make a really good point that we do have the patient portion and the caregiver portion, but man, they do blend so much. So if I'm sitting with a patient and, uh, you know, at the end of scoring this assessment, they're, they're clearly having maybe some difficulties, much more so than the average person with, you know, tasks of executive function that raises questions. Well, who is managing the finances? Because some of these same tasks that we're assessing are what they would use to manage their finances or their checkbook mm-hmm. at home. Who is managing the calendar? 
who is managing medications? Um, you know, and the, these are all things that can certainly impact patient safety, patient care. Um, if it comes down to more temporal lobe findings where they're having difficulties finding words and communicating, if they're having difficulties comprehending what's being said to them, that's affecting communication at home. It's affecting uh, the core relationship between caregiver and, and uh, their loved one, and even the things that we may attempt to help them with here in clinic. So it, it's, it has a far-reaching impact and far-reaching implications. And um, you know the goal down the road here is to look at these assessments and, and to maybe see what some of these results show as a whole. I think to date, I haven't done an exact count. But 65. 65. That's exactly what I, I was going to say, today. too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so we, we've done 65 over the past, you want to say, year and year a half? Year and a half. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we're really trying to, to maybe push this to be a standard of care because we see just in this amount of time how valuable this has been in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And there are many comprehensive clinics that really don't tap this, you know, avenue at all. Well, if you've been doing this assessment for a year and a half, less than two years, of course there's probably a lot that aren't doing it at the same level. And that's got to be something to not be necessarily excited about, but look forward to is that if this works, the other clinics can use it because it's not like, oh, there's this expensive contraption to get. Like it's something right. that any clinic could replicate and maybe they learn something that they could pass back and say, oh, Travis, we do this in this state and it worked really well and helped patients and you can collaborate beyond the Hershey Clinic, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I'm sure you're always looking for, like, just like with this assessment, you, you looked at other kinds of assessments out there. Mm -hmm. You're always looking at ways to improve the practice of care. Sure. Sure. And, and like Judy said, the reason that we found this assessment to be uh, so intriguing is that this was developed um, with people diagnosed with ALS for them specifically, uh, for people that may not be verbal anymore. Um, I've even done the cognitive portion with people that have an eye gaze system mm. or need to type in a phone. So, you know, a lot of this assessment can be done in many unique circumstances. And part of the reason it was developed um, is that there's a good understanding of that kind of dimension, that kind of that part of the brain. Yeah, you're exactly right. So you you can't just say, well, dementia is this, and and um, we're going to do this. Like you you have to understand that these kind of behaviors and um and things happen because of impacts in this part of the brain. It's Absolutely. not. I don't know the brain well enough. I'm just. I'm just the guy that does some podcasts. <laughs> I write some newsletter. I do a lot more than that, but so that's not my job. Um, but you, and then you at your level have to understand the brain a good bit, which is a complicated thing to understand. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that we understand that completely, and and neither does science. But uh, you know, the assessment is is created in such a way that there are ALS specific. Uh, components or domains that tend to be, you know, affected more so uh, than other domains in this particular type of, you know, dementia. Um, that would be language abilities, executive functions, and more often than not, memory and visual spatial processing tends to be intact.
Mm -hmm. Not so much the case if we're talking about something like Alzheimer's disease, which for the most part, we know tends to be predominantly affecting the memory. And I think I, I was just writing this down that, you know, we're still understanding the brain. As you move these assessments forward for ALS, people with ALS, there's also a lot of research going on that's understanding the brain in new ways every year. Every year. And so that's going to translate to what you can do on the clinic setting, do with these assessments, because maybe next year there's something where they like, they, we understand that the brain does X and we didn't realize it before. We mm -hmm. understand that um, maybe addiction or the addictive behavior, which I know is sometimes a big part of the um, FTD, um, that can manifest itself in many ways. And now you have new questions you want to ask or new right. ways of being, of having that kind of issue. Like, right. Yeah, like, it always seems to, to be in the process of refinement. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a good, I'm sure, Judy, like you say, you've been working with ALS. I said 14 years, it's 140 years. Maybe. <laughs> Seems like as soon as they developed ALS, you're like, I'm going to get on that. That looks no. good. Um, I, I think the biggest point that we can make to show the advancement is that if you look back in past literature, everyone thought the ALS patient lost everything except their mind. Right. right. Everybody kind of thinks of Stephen Hawking. it's still out there. And it wasn't even that long ago. No. Right. And, and it is still out there right. in many articles that people will come back, especially to my support group, and say, but wait, I read, but we know that it, just in generalization, we know that at least 50% of the population of ALS patients have cognitive cognition and behavior intact mm -hmm. but then the remainder of it has some kind of change mm -hmm. actual brain change and if you, you get them to understand that it is an actual brain change it's not just you know the thought process mm -hmm. um, it, it's more convincing but we know that and if you figure 30 to 35 percent have some type of executive functioning or problems sure. with their words or whatever that has a big impact on the work and the home mm -hmm. and then the very small percentage that has an actual blown dementia that really is traumatizing so it's getting that awareness out right now that, mm -hmm. that we're trying to say yes this this is true this is like being diagnosed with ALS we know now that there's some other stuff that goes with it mm -hmm. um, now the I am just thinking about talking to Dr. Connor earlier, worth at Hershey Medical Center, and talking with knowing the whole collaborative approach here at Hershey Medical Center and at most ALS treatment centers. Um, we want to cure ALS or at least find some substantial treatment. One of the things that um, a lot of the researchers talk about is biomarkers, and he was talking about things that are over my head in, in terms of protein interaction. Like I can get some of it, but um, that's his job, not mine. Again. Right. Right. Um, but this creates a new, not, maybe not a biomarker, but a new way to tell later if drugs can work. Not, not saying we're going to do this now, but mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. now that we understand the, the cognitive function more and you're able to talk about it more, mm -hmm. um, now there's more ways to see what's working, what's not working. It's going to get us closer to that cure or treatments or, or even just treatment plans, whether mm -hmm. it's drugs or not, right? So um, it's... It reminds me, the first thing that came to mind is Independence Day, where they all go attack from all sides of the big motherships. That's right. Um, but mm -hmm. then you have to have someone like Dennis Quaid, or Randy Quaid, was one of the Quaids, fly up through the big thing and destroy it from yeah. inside. And then you need to have someone attack the brain of the mothership, like Jeff Goldblum did. <laughs> Hear me out here. <laughs> where he goes and puts a virus in them. 
using a computer, which doesn't make any sense. But um, <laughs> but you have to attack all of it, right? You, right. Like they attack exactly. the brain, they attack the sides, they attack from the. You have to attack the whole part of ALS, just like Will Smith Absolutely. and Jeff Goldblum. And Absolutely. and Absolutely. again, I I personally feel it's going to be found to be many things, not one. Right. Just like cancer was many <clears throat> types of cancer, mm -hmm. I think the same is going to hold true with ALS. And so we tell the patients, you know, what you see when you come to support group or you come to clinic, you may not experience because it is unique to each individual. Right. And so it is with the cognitive and behavioral. It's unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, it the, really is. the the situations we hear about and we work with they're unique we try to pull on past situations to help us to help them but theirs is unique well every brain's unique and that's why you're doing brain stuff right yeah, exactly absolutely yeah. and you're, you're probably learning every day oh every day more than <laughs> more than i want sometimes oh, well yeah as information comes in information it goes, goes out, out. yeah i'm sure if i asked you more who won out. super bowl 23 you probably like you knew that yesterday but that was gone <laughs> Um, so, well, I appreciate the work you're doing here at Hershey Medical Center. Um, is there anything else that we should make sure that people know about that, or more things that people can read about out there to learn more resources? You know, there, there are some really good websites in, in terms of research. Uh, ALS Association is definitely one of them. Uh, I also oh, <laughs> you like that plug. Just like we talked about Dr. Potter, he got a grant for the ALS system. So he's going to go in there and be like, well, I'm going to get the money. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I also tend to frequent the Northeast ALS Consortium. Mm -hmm. And I tell people that there's, you got to be careful on the internet. Uh, there's a lot of. Yes misinformation and a lot of poor information out there and and you know the ALS Association and Niels the Northeast mm -hmm. ALS Consortium very good credible reliable sources of information and uh, if people are looking to get involved in clinical trials you know clinicaltrials.gov is, is like a search engine for clinical trials you can see what's in your area um, if it's a particular drug you're looking for and uh, man just just get involved as much as possible. And, and Judy, I imagine on that level, it's a very good thing if you're personally a loss or a caregiver, ask your clinic team, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and attend your resource groups. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of knowledge that comes out of them and a lot of people that learn to network with each other and it becomes a less scary situation. And that knowledge of the resource groups goes both ways, right? Because you have, how many people in one of your resource groups? Um, the last one was 32. 32, that's incredible. So they learn from each other, possibly from, again from you, mm -hmm. and then I'm sure you learn a lot from seeing the interactions and hearing from what they're doing on a day-to-day -day level. Exactly, and and there's speakers that come in that can really broaden the horizons for all of us. Yeah, so that's a good point. If you have are looking at things to do and you're wondering what the resource groups are, not only would you be helping yourself, hopefully you'd be helping others. So the more you do, the more you're helping the whole ALS cause. So. Well, thank you, Travis and Judy, for taking some time today, especially for waiting for me, because uh, I was late going to the ultrasound for son number two. Uh, you gave it away. Yeah, but this won't be up until after one night, okay. so it's okay. Uh, so uh, you can get involved um, all year round. Uh, you can challenge ALS at www.alsphiladelphia.org. Find us on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Tumblr, Vine. I think there's some other things, though they're not all updated, at ALS Philadelphia. Um, you can find our podcast, hopefully you found this somehow, at, um, on iTunes at ALS Philadelphia or 
on our website, alsphiladelphia.org slash podcast. And if you're interested in getting involved uh, to support the Hershey Walk to Defeat ALS, even though the walk happened in June, you can support it all year round at HersheyWalkToDefeatALS.org. So with all that said, thank you very much, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing the work together. Thank you. Thank you.